This is uh, only the most valuable jazz record in existence. It's hermetically sealed in air from the 1950s. I've been saving up for 20 years for this baby and it's finally arrived. You don't play records like this. You widen the grooves, lower the value. No, no, this is the only one of its kind. When it comes to pure soul, pure jazz, you can only be mucho soul on Back to Back FM. Spin the tune, my man! Spin the tune! Wishing, wishing you were here, here with me tonight. Lovely, slowly here, how I need you there. Please don't have no fear, come on home tonight. Well, I know I did you wrong and I'm sorry, baby, come on home. Yeah, don't you need my love, I'm here tonight. There's kindness here. So please come home, my dear. I need you here tonight, girl. I want you here tonight, girl. Please don't try to fight, girl. Come on home tonight, girl. Come on home to me, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on home to me, girl, yeah, yeah. Good afternoon, welcome to another Mucho Soul interview special here on backtobackfm.net. It's yours truly, Alan Kenny Arscott and brother in crime Ketchar until three. And we have an extra special treat for you this week. It's the one you've been waiting for, the acid jazz special we've been promising for the last month. It was way back at the tail end of 1987 that saw the seven-inch release of Galliano's Frederick Lie Still, 
which helped kickstart both Acid Jazz The Scene and Acid Jazz The Record Label. And so it is that this year marks the 25th anniversary of Acid Jazz. And to celebrate, there's been a boat party, various magazine and newspaper features, a Shoreditch Backstreet pub shindig, and even a pop-up vinyl shop set up in conjunction with Ben Sherman. But more importantly, last month saw the release of Acid Jazz, the 25th anniversary box set, a lavish four-CD release from Harmony's Records compiled by Eddie Piller and Dean Rudland. As well as the four CDs, this set also comprises a DVD featuring rare Acid Jazz footage, a limited edition brand new heavy 7-inch, and a couple of great books, The History of Acid Jazz and the Cover Art of Acid Jazz, all documenting the, the Acid Jazz story. Wow, that's some box set, I've got to tell you, and it's an ideal Christmas present uh, if you want to put something down on your list, just... Uh, include that one so earlier this week myself and Ket sat down with Eddie and Dean at the Acid Jazz uh, offices and had a little chat with them it's an in-depth history of the label and the scene It's a Mucho Soul special. So grab yourself a glass of wine, a glass of champagne. As we celebrate 25 years of acid jazz. Enjoy. Guys, first of all, acid jazz is a tag that has both confused and confounded in equal measure over the years, with various explanations being offered by all the various leaders within the scene. An antidote or backlash to the rave house explosion, an in-joke of the rare groove warehouse and jazz dance scene, a cool underground movement where jazz heads meet second-generation mods. These are just a few. But what did acid jazz actually mean to you when you formed the label with Giles back in the late 80s? Well, how do you answer that, Al, really? That's quite a long uh, question. I established the label with Giles around about autumn 1987, but the first single, Galliano, didn't come out until very early 1988. Um, you know, we had the idea for about six months before we actually did it because lots of our mates were, you know, creative, you know, and I'd been working at Stiff Records and I'd had an idea of how to run an indie label. I was running one at the time, you know, when I left Stiff, I ran a label which had some jazz stuff on it, the Jazz Renegades and the James Taylor Quartet. And that's how I met Giles. And after a while, we thought, wouldn't it be kind of fun to set up a label for our scene, which was developing over a, you know, post-rare groove. It was an interesting time in London clubbing, just before the Acid House explosion. It was really, really exciting for us. Jazz, rare groove, funk, mods, Northern Soul, all that stuff mixed up with B-Boy culture at the Special Branch. And then suddenly, Acid House happened. And it happened overnight on the Special Branch holiday, um, that Nicky Holloway organised to Ibiza, where some of the DJs went and heard Chicago House for the first time. They came back to where all the other soul guys were. There were 400 of us on this holiday, including most of the main DJs on the scene. 
you know it wasn't it wasn't divided up as it is now there was a kind of a music scene loads of DJs went and discovered this new music and it virtually divided the scene in half overnight and Acid House came rolling in to London and was massive and it was great it was really exciting summer but then by the end of the summer there's only so many times you can hear can you feel it without thinking oh you know and I was missing, as well as a lot of other people, was missing the spark of, of our black musical heritage that had kind of disappeared in Acid House overnight. So we loved the excitement of this scene and we loved the attitude and the peace and love thing and everything else, but we didn't really like the music. So we went back to our roots of Rare Groove and Northern Soul and Jazz Dance and, you know, mixed it up with all that other stuff. DJs like Chris Bangs, Dr. Bob Jones, Kevin Beadle, oh. even even Simon Dunmore, you know, these were the DJs that we followed every week, you know, and I DJed with Giles Peterson at the WAG Club, which started off as a straight down the line jazz night, and then gradually, as that summer took hold, everything changed. It's a trip. It's got a funky beat, and I can bug out. Dean was a little bit younger than me, and he didn't come to work at Acid Jazz until Giles left. Dean saw it from a slightly different perspective. I saw it as a DJ that left the Northern Soul scene and the mod scene and was bored of that music and stumbled into Nicky Holloway and Peterson and the Special Branch, and it was really exciting. Whereas Dean was two years young, three, four years younger, and he's five. (laughs) (laughs) And, And he saw it as a punter. So, you know, that's my reflection of how it started. What about yours? The great thing about it was, is I kind of was a mod and I wanted the whole kind of Soho mid 80s jazz thing you know and I ended up going to the jazz room at the WAG on a Monday night and you go upstairs where Giles was DJing and what you got was you got an incredible mix of records 
you were getting funk and soul and you were getting your Jimmy Smith, which is what I was there for. Everything, it was just so exciting, so vibrant. And you go down Dingles and you throw in the early house records and the uh, kind of early hip-hop instrumentals that Giles was playing at the time. And what you ended up with was just an incredibly vibrant scene. Coming from the mod scene, the great thing about that was you get all sorts of different 60s soul, jazz, R&B, boogaloo. You get a wide variety of different music. You go to a house club, you get house music. You go to an acid jazz club, you got an incredible variety of, you know, house, jazz, Latin, soul. It was a complete cornucopia. And that was so much more exciting for me than just hearing one sort of music all night long. Regarding the setting up of the label itself, we understand Giles was working on the BGP imprint and you'd just come up back from working for re-elect the president. Whose idea was it to team together to create Acid Jazz Records and what was the original remit for the label? Well, actually, that's that's kind of true. I was running re-elect the president, which was my indie label when Stiff folded. But I was also working as a consultant for Urban Records, which was Polydor's dance arm 
we had some success with the James Brown reissues on Urban, and I believe in Miracles, I think, even got in the charts. So that was where I was. I was managing the James Taylor Quartet, who was on Relate the President. My job at Polydor, I, I saw this kind of new jazz thing. So I took James Taylor from my own label, and we signed him to Urban, and he made uh, Wait a Minute, which was the first real acid jazz album. But at the same time, we did a compilation called Acid Jazz and Other Illicit Grooves with Simon Booth was the producer from Working Week and Giles Peterson and myself and a couple of other people were involved. At the same time, we were working on the concept of doing a label, but we thought that Polydor and their marketing money and this whole acid thing that was so big that year, with a bit of a major marketing plan behind it, we would actually announce the label to the world in a way that had already been done by a major marketing campaign. So that's why we did it. And it was really successful. We had a few of the very early bands, JTQ were on it, obviously. But, you know, that gave us an impetus. And from there, at Urban, I carried on working there for a few years and I did things like the Jazz Renegades and um, Steve Williamson album, you know, the sax player. So I was doing that at the same time. So did Tongy and Walker get you in? No, no, no. I was, I was, I can't remember how I got a job actually uh, uh, at Polydor. My, I remember my immediate boss was Dangerous Dave, uh, who I never saw without a baseball cap. Why is that? <laughs> Why did Dave Pierce never go out without wearing a baseball cap? And that was before they were fashionable. Um, but anyway, so I had a great time at Polydor. Stiff had gone bust, and I was still running my little indie. And I just saw the opportunity to set up a label to cater for our mates you know the mates from hanging around with Peterson for a couple of years you know we had loads of creative people in our circle like for example Galliano our first release Rob was literally Giles's DJ roadie and his party trick was to go on the mic at the wag club and just rap over you know last poet style New York style jazz consciousness rap from a bloke from Finchley and and it went down really really well you know so that was our first release and that's how the label started Frederick lies still. Ah, Frederick's now lying still. Ah, but I don't feel sorry. I want to make it play. The dude's now dead, but he died in vain. When his time ran out, nothing had changed. While Rick moved in from the kill, Freddie was found lying still. We are only to take the blame Cause it was never really his aim To play in the super flag game Ah, oh, but his time ran out Ah, oh, he copped on what we're all about Hell of a long time he's been dying And Soweto, his mother's been crying Ain't no sign he'll ever stop trying Oh, we're all too busy lying Oh, Frederick's He's been chill While the real hustlers screw millions From the unsuspecting billions J. Edgar Hoover gets king Through L.A. Shooter Ah, oh, Frederick doesn't move That dude no more to be used Ah, oh, still no change Making me low Keep on running with the flow But the bullshit money man The man had to go Ah, oh, cops on a bag Of reefers of sky Never work for no pay If I caught you cheating I'll give you a beating Might even blow you away 
like the man He came as far as he could Oh, I think we all knew he would Oh, she talked a little much And he ever should Oh, had to return to the gutter Bread without his brother Oh, to cup on the rule of the pimp's favorite tool Oh, lightning rod Burning lead Oh, now Freddy's dead How long was it before Giles left to form Talking Loud Records? And can you explain how you initially felt about his departure and how and when did Dean come on board? Giles left in, in late, I can't actually remember, in late 89, early 1990, something like that. Basically, we'd been running the label out of our bedrooms and it was quite difficult. There's no money in the independent music industry at that time, especially when you're releasing records that you know sell a few thousand. Mercury Records came in and said to Giles, look, we've got an idea. This has actually got some legs, this. So do you want to come in and set up an acid jazz on a major? I totally didn't want to do it, and he did. I don't think they would have asked me anyway. Um, so Giles said, look, you know, uh, it's been great. It's been good fun, but I've got this opportunity. It's great for me. I'll, I'll get this, that, and the other. So we parted in very good company after about 18 months. That's when I decided that if I wanted to continue the label, I had to come up with some good stuff because Giles obviously had a great reputation and was really, really good at music. Whereas I wasn't particularly known on this scene. I'd been a mod soul DJ. So I decided that I'd have to come up with some really good stuff. So at that point, that's when I decided to track down some of my favorite artists from the States and see what they had. You know, I got hold of Charles Erland. He didn't want to do anything. He didn't believe me that people in England liked his stuff. He didn't believe me. I got hold of Johnny Bristol, who didn't want to do anything. Um, and then finally, after a very long time, I, I managed to get hold of Terry Callier. And and that was that was the inspiration that made me think, this can work. And also the heavies broke in the States at the same yeah. time. That heavies record came along just as Jazz FM was launching. It was the first of the new local licenses that they were giving out for um, FM stations. The airplay that that got suddenly established the label again as a serious player. It had been a hobby, I think. People had seen it as something as interesting, but not that serious. Suddenly there was this record which was full of great instrumentals, but even even better, the songs. Three or four songs, Ride in the Sky, Stay This Way, Dream Come True, that were just phenomenal records. As good as anything that British Soul had ever turned up. They That kind of burbled through the the pre-launch of Jazz FM, through the launch of Jazz FM, and then through the launch of Kiss in the autumn. And it created a presence and a, you know, a sense that the label was suddenly quite a serious player. It was kind of really the point at which the label started being taken seriously as a place that got, that was making music.
did you eventually view Talking Loud Records as a healthy competition? And would it be fair to say that the two labels actually helped to fuel each other's success? I think it would definitely be fair to say that it created a scene. One label releasing records is just a label releasing records. Suddenly there was Talking Loud and there was people coming up like James Lavelle, uh, Ollie at Dorado, um, the Giant Steps guys in New York, who were all coming off our scene and all starting to release records. I mean, I remember the first record on Mo Wax was Repercussions, which was a record we turned down because it sounded too much like the brand new heavies. After two or three years of it being in existence, there were suddenly all these things happening. It certainly helped that Talking Loud was releasing records in a slightly different way. They had a bigger budget because they were backed by a major. We were kind of looking down the back of the sofa every night to see, see whether we could find a few more pound coins to make the next record. I remember the Acid Jazz Talking Loud days very fondly for two reasons. The first first one is that the music industry has always thrived off uh, rivalry and competition. Look at the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. Look at Oasis and Blur. Look at, you know, whoever you want to look at. So suddenly there's a label like us uh, releasing the same kind of stuff as us, but they had a massive budget. So they were international, not in the States, but they were very big in Japan and, and certainly in Europe. So they would spend a lot of money on marketing. And because we were seen as part of the same kind of entity, we as an independent would actually do better because people around the world into these underground scenes were inst- instinctively um, empathic with indies. And so we didn't have the marketing spend, but we did as well as talking loud off the back of what they did. Show 
Talking Loud suffered in some ways from having to work the major game. So when they made, signed an artist, they had to release singles with 7,000 mixes, which in retrospect people go, oh, Talking Loud, they had all those remixes. Yeah, just like everyone else who had a major label budget. But in fact, we had to just concentrate on making great albums because we couldn't afford to do it any other way. It was fun, but we were very different entities. You also built relationships up with US label Delicious, Delicious Vinyl. Vinyl and Dred Flintstone's label. Dred Flintstone is a very interesting character because when I went, I went to LA to make music and I met Dred and he was a, a white raster uh, who lived in a Jamaican ghetto who made great music. Now, I, I, I love roots and culture and so I made a record with Dred and it gave us, it was Danny Talaglia's first ever, Dean was just saying about remixes weren't important but actually in this instance, Danny Talaglia's first ever remix was from the ghetto. Anyway, it gave us our first number one, number one hit with Dred Flimstone and, and actually something I learned about Dred a few years later, his lawyer told me that he was actually Jim Morrison's son and um, he obviously, he didn't tell anybody so there you go. He's a gang-banging, gun-carrying, white raster from <laughs> the Jamaican ghetto in L.A. And he is the most interesting character I've met. But anyway, he gave me my first club hit. First number one. You know, I think we should play a little music for the nice people listening. From the ghetto. You're in tune to Dead Flintstone, my advice. Right about now, my selector. Come again. How do you feel?
fairly well known that there was quite a purist view within the soul, funk and jazz clubs around the mid-80s, particularly here in London. And being second-generation mods, I'm sure you would have experienced your own fair share of that sort of thing. Looking back, can you remember how you personally felt about both the emergence of hip-hop and the onslaught of house music within Clubland? As we've recently read, that Acid Jazz initially had a strict no house music policy. Yeah, that's that's some kind of weirdo fallacy, the strict no house music policy, because of our first four records, I think uh, one was Breakbeat Funk, two were house, and one was a bootleg. So... Uh, <laughs> Dean, Dean's got a point. I was going. I really wanted to answer that, but I'll give it to Dean. <laughs> On top of that, we uh, set up uh, Roger Sanchez's own label for him. <laughs> so you know, it was like the idea that we were we were divorced from the house market was insane. Look at our our release schedule. The first four or five records, Chris, five records. yeah, we had um, Chris Bangs made like low ecstasis. I mean, for God's sake, it was an acid house record with Giles Peterson singing Peace and Love going backwards. I mean, you couldn't get more out there in Ibiza than that. And the hits that uh, the heavies had. Yeah. Dave Lee mixes, yeah. uh, David Morales mixes. Danny Telaglia mixes for uh, Dread Flimstone. Of Dread Flimstone. A Man Called Adam, Techno Powers, come on. You know, all I've ever said is that I loved Acid House, but after six months, I was bored. And I continue to love Soulful House, you know, but the Acid House period of London of 87, which was mainly based around the trip from Nicky Holloway and Shum um, from Danny Ramplin, you know, it was brilliant. It was liberating. It was fantastic. But eventually the music bored us. And we were talking about the label the whole time. What are we going to call it? What should we do? Da, 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 da. But in the end, for a bit of a joke, Bangsy had come up with the phrase, Chris Bangs, one of the finest DJs this country's ever produced, came up with the phrase acid jazz for a joke. So that's why we did it. Thank you, Bangsy. <laughs> Right on. 
there was a lot of things going on at the time, but for me, the key nights were the Royal Oak, Tooley Street. And how did I meet Holloway? I used to DJ on the Royal Oak on a Friday for the Northern Soul Night, occasionally, once a month, as a guest. And the bouncer said to me, yeah, there's something on on Saturdays you might like. Upstairs they play your kind of music. That's basically how I discovered the special ones. So I went on the Saturday, saw Kevin Beadle playing some weirdo-like sambas. I'm thinking, this is actually quite good. And there's a few other mods about. And there's girls here. Most importantly. Yeah, on the, on the mod scene. Yeah, on the mod scene. There were no birds. They were all blokes. And they still are. If we look back at the history of your label, two originally signed and commercially successful acts immediately stand out, the brand new heavies and Jamiroquai. Can you describe how you discovered and signed both these acts, and in the case of Jamiroquai, explain why you weren't able to keep hold of JK under the Your Acid Jazz label? 
basically what happened was the brand new heavies were signed to EMI and they released a record on um, their own little label fake bootleg label so and I loved the heavies they were great I saw them they wore suits they looked a bit moddy but a bit more rare groovy fantastic band loved them EMI dropped them they were finished right the singer left Linda Mural left. They were finished. One day, I had a post office box for Acid Jazz, and I went up there one day, and I found this cassette from Jim Wellman, the sax player in the Brandy Heavies who wrote most of the great songs. Right, This cassette is like, you've just set up a label. We've just been dropped by EMI. This is our demo. We'd love to sign to Acid Jazz. What do you think? So I discussed it with Giles. Giles thought, that they were a little bit too retro for what he wanted to do. He was much more progressive than me. I've got to be honest, Giles was very progressive. I was a little bit more commercial, I would say. You know, I would rather have a pop soul track and he would rather have a kind of left field jazz poetry. You know, it was that kind of thing, which actually made it really good between us because, you know, we were always arguing about what we should do. But with the heavies, you know, Giles said, you're all right, do it. So put them in the studio I sat in we made an album the blue album as it's known with the elephant on the front and what actually happened was from being a washed up dropped band that came to us because we were the only people putting out soul music in Britain at the time we released the album and it got a bit of critical praise from our scene and we sold maybe a thousand units but we needed to get it released internationally and we're independent, we haven't got any. So I sent out some demos and I thought, why don't I send the albums to all the American hip-hop labels? So I sent them out from our little stable in the Hackney Road where Dina just started working and we had a deadline of like 60 days to place the international deal and on about the 48th day, I got a phone call from Delicious Final saying, this is the bomb, this is it, you know, this is fantastic can we get on board so we said yeah slight problem the singer's just left um we haven't really got a singer don't worry we'll work on it so you know the album did pretty well over here we're doing okay but it didn't really kick in until what happened was we didn't get taken seriously as dean said earlier what happened was brand new heavies got released in america and every single american hip-hop artist took them seriously so suddenly we had a hot band you know, Island Records, they were arguing about 30 grand for 50% of Acid Jazz three months before, and then they're offering us 150 grand for the brand new heavies. I mean, it was like it went mad overnight purely because Americans had gone, this is the future of black music overnight. It was totally bizarre. And that's what happened. It went mad. And then when suddenly we'd had hits in America, in the American national charts, suddenly the UK press and media and radio took it seriously and then we're sitting in the driving seat of a juggernaut
Well, Jamiroquai was brought to us by uh, a guy called Tunji Williams. He'd been the original manager of the Brand New Heavies, and he brought us this cassette in one lunchtime and played it. And we're going, well, that's pretty good, isn't it? We're going, it's a woman. He's going, no, 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 no. It's a, it's a white guy from Ealing. And he, he points to this guy who's outside the office. We're just going, no, no out way. He's over the road, out the window, and he turns his whistle and gone, Jay, Jay. And there's this fucking kid. He's like about five foot five, wearing a pony skin hat, a Mayan kind of poncho, uh, a pair of kind of casual cords, you know, with the four-inch slit up the sides, yeah. and gazelles. And Tunji's gone, oi, come up here. Where he proceeds to repeat the whole record. And it just seemed like the most obvious thing in the world, that this guy was a star. I remember that first six months where we were trying to work on the first single, which was costing us an absolute fortune. He was an absolute nightmare to work with, because he was a star from the start. We've seen him since, and he, he hasn't really changed much. He's always been superstar attitudes, and he delivered, is, is the big thing with him. But... We realised very early on there was no way this was going to be something that we could bring to its full fruition because it was just too big for a small independent label. So we went round various labels trying to work out who would want want to sign him, work in partnership with us. EMI Music Publishing straight away signed a deal on the publishing with us. Then um, every major in London turned him down, including the people who now say, oh, we discovered him. Yeah, right turned him down and kicked us out with a flea in our ear. Eventually, Sony in the uh, US, who were big friends of the label, said, this is amazing, we've got to sign him, but you've got to go through the UK company. As soon as the UK company got it back and were being told to sign it, they said, right, we're signing it, but you're you're out of the picture. I went, right. And he goes, look, we've got the artist on the side, which is fair enough, because they'd offered him far more money than we could ever offer him. Their comment to us was, We've got more lawyers than you, so we're winning. And they did They did the same with um, with one of two acts that they've tried to break the contracts with at the same time, and, and they succeeded in both occasions. The other act was Rizala. But that's why we didn't end up we keeping didn't. Jay signed. The important thing to remember is that we always decided we needed a partner. And the thing was, nobody wanted it. That's the thing to bear in mind now. So this was what we were faced with at every meeting I went to. So it was quite difficult because we believed in him. We obviously thought he was a massive star, but we knew we couldn't keep him because he the first single cost 37 grand to make and the heaviest first album cost seven grand. We can't afford 37. If James Brown's brass section's here, uh, can I have them on my record tomorrow? No, I want them. I didn't like yesterday's recording. Can we do it somewhere else? He was a total star. He knew what he wanted and we didn't think we could fulfill it at a budget that was affordable to our label. So we needed a partner. And EMI Music became our partner. We did really well out of Jamiroquai. Jamiroquai bought the blue note for us because we got paid. So I'm not complaining.
so politicians This time, I think you better keep your distance Say, say it loud on to one of your other acts one of our personal favorite acid jazz recordings of the late 90s and an album we know you are particularly proud of eddie is mother earth's the people tree for the benefit of our listeners can you tell us about your role in that particular recording and explain what became of mother earth after that and in particular vocalist guitarist matt dayton Oh, hello. What, you're breaking my heart now. <laughs> um, okay, so what were Mother Earth? I had a flatmate called Bunny who was part of the Special Branch scene. And he said, look, why don't we make a record out of your breakbeats? So, you know, we've gone through, I've got me techniques at home, we've gone through, but these are very early days of sampling. Um, and we've made, I've collected loads of samples and we made the first album, which was called Stoned Woman. So the band, there wasn't a band. We got James Taylor, we got Paul Daly from Left Field and a man called Adam. We got... Um, Hugh Brooker, we, we got loads of the acid jazz musicians, Simon Bartholomew from the Heavies, to play on on my breakbeats. Called it Mother Earth, found a couple of young girls in the studio that could sing a little bit, who were hanging around, got them on board. Suddenly, we've released a record that's got nine out of 10 from NME and sold 60,000. And we're like, whoa, what do you do now? Because I can't play anything. It was my samples. Bunny can't play anything, but he plays a bit of percussion. Um, so it was... a weird situation so suddenly we had to recruit a band and I'd recruited the band from a guy uh, a jazz funk bass player a a mod drummer a mod organist and then I couldn't find a singer guitarist right so then I get a knock on the door I live in Woodford it's a little rural no it's not it's by the railway line (laughs) but it's nice (laughs) but anyway I forgot that I used this as my address for my record label because it's my home so uh, in music week directory 
Matt Dayton is in a band called the Wolfhounds and he's just left because he's second singer and guitarist doesn't like it so he knocks on my door and goes excuse me is this house of jazz and i mean it's my front room yes it is come in who are you i'm a singer guitarist and i'm really good and i really like what you do so i say well here's a record it was little yellow pills by a guy called jackie lomax on apple records which is a mod psych soul classic very rare give him a cassette of it and say come back tomorrow and just if you can sing sing it so I put on the original record, he comes in, sings it, he fucking nails it. So I'm like, okay, you've got the job. What do I do? You're the lead singer stroke guitarist of my band Mother Earth. Okay, <laughs> what are we doing? Well, um, you can play, we've almost finished the album, you can play a couple of guitar bits on this, but all, it's all done. So he does that, and then we have a band. They make their debut at the Town & Country 2 with Jamiroquai, same night as Jamiroquai made his debut, Mother Earth played. They did a five-song set, nailed it. So we got the brilliant review, and then suddenly I'm faced with making this record, The People Tree. So this is my life's work. I go in, I take them in, I go to the studios I want, I use the equipment I want, I get session players I want, and I make what I think is a masterpiece. And it's. And if I've made one brilliant record ever... I think he's done it, Eddie. Well, <laughs> Dean, Dean will now explain why I was such an unbearable person in that year. Eddie spent a year making that record. We had some great songs. We had the freedom of the money coming in from the success of the heavies and Jamiroquai. We took a year to make the album. With about a week to go to the deadline, we had seven songs, I think. We recorded six songs in a week at Acid Jazz Studios. The album that came out of it was so incredible, but it was also very much a part of, of Acid Jazz growing up. There, there was a point where we were just a bunch of kids in our 20s running a record label, and suddenly we were very, very successful. None of us had a clue what we were doing, really. We didn't know how to run a business. We just knew that we liked making records and making the most fun records that we could ever make. Ultimately, it would catch up on us. But at that point, we spent a year recording everywhere, from big studios in Primrose Hill to Peter Gabriel's studio in Box to Back to Acid Jazz. I mixed that album on Van Morrison's uh, Neve 8-track. That's how obsessed I was at the time. I've Come on. But on that album, we, we had Simon Bartholomew from the Heavies came down and he found an African drum in, in Peter Gabriel's studio and we took loads of mushrooms and drunk loads of red wine and then uh, the band just got in the studio about four in the morning and started playing this kind of instrumental and this one was just amazing and, and Simon Bartholomew, a guitarist, is playing some big African drum with, with his hands like a conga and it was just a spiritual experience and that is actually on the album. There's parts one and two of that on that album. For me, it's a very, very personal kind of experience because I lived that album for a year but it was the most successful album we distributed through our own independent distribution network. Obviously the Heavies did, did more and Jamiroquai did more but through our own network that was my most successful ever record and I produced it and I'm very proud of it. And what's happened to Matt now then? Matt's um, a jobbing singer-songwriter. Obviously he played with Oasis, he played with Paul Weller after that. Currently I've just been sent the three best things he's done in maybe 15, 20 years. Three new kind of folky things with strings. Just absolutely beautiful. Matt's living in North Wales. The life of the uh, hippie, hippie songwriter, I think. But he's still got it. Yeah, I, I think he's a legend. Actually, he's a genius, Matt Dayton. He's one of uh, Britain's great undiscovered treasures.
Right, gentlemen, um, your Totally Wired series of compilations were another big acid jazz success. How did the idea for those albums come about? And was there a particular agenda with regards to the music that was included on them compilations? Yeah, of course there was. The albums came about because Giles had done his jazz dance comps at BGP. I'd done acid jazz and other grooves on Polydor. But all those comps and every comp you've ever bought in your life is either a hits comp or it's a comp of Tamla Motown or Trojan or, you know, like, it's a very specific thing. What we wanted to do was get back to the concept of getting an album together that you could put on at a party and just play both sides and you wouldn't have to take it off and put on another record. To do that, we looked for old black music that we loved. We looked for new bands that were coming out of our scene. So we mixed it up and we wanted it to be like the album that you don't have to take off when you go to a party. It was, it was that great thing that, you had some old records. You had some demos you'd been sent in. A few tracks from the bands you're working with. Then this really great 12 that we someone had sent us, we'll license it in, be it a Forest Mighty Black or Maroon Town or Ashley and Jackson. It basically, looking back, it seems, and Eddie can confirm this or not, it was like a night in whichever club we'd go to. That's what you DJ if you went to that club. It's like a DJ set on an acid jazz club, which is a bit of old records, a bit of new records. One of my favourite tracks ever on Totally Wired is Children of the Ghetto by The Real Thing, which is in no way a club record, but it's a beautiful piece of music. There was a lot of people saying how they've been introduced to Milton Wright's Keep It Up by <laughs> Totally Wired 4. And you're just going, that's fantastic. And I, I know a lot of people were introduced to Hercules by Aaron Neville from Totally Wired 5. Introducing that great music to people via your compilations, such a buzz. Someone comes up to me and says, 
I got into Jay Mason because I, I listened to it on a Totally Wired. I got into black music because I heard Totally, totally Wired or Acid Jazz. See, that's what we do it for. story behind the actual title totally wide basically what happened was um we just released ed jones who was a great british bebop tenor player you know it wasn't particularly changing the world and it wasn't particularly acid jazz it, there was a couple of dance floor tracks on it but it was a nice little ep five track ep 12 inch vinyl only on acid jazz it's about our sixth or seventh release and we got a review in the wire and it was yet again, The Wire was the intellectual jazz magazine of the time. Yet again, it was, what a load of old crap. However, um, you know, it was, oh, yet again, look. Look, they said, that, what about Bucky Leo? They've said it now about Ed Jones. They said it about a man called Adam. And basically, they said it's a disgrace. This is not jazz. These people are naive in their approach and da-da-da. But what they didn't understand was that we only cared about records you could dance to. So they didn't get that. To see that in review after review was really annoying. And Giles said, oh, look, we've been totally wired again. Totally wired again. And that's where it came from. And we came along as these upstart bastards that, that said, hey, jazz ain't about what you do. Jazz is about dancing. And they couldn't cope with it. That's all it was. That's where Totally Wild came from. And I would like to play a little tune I just composed not so long ago. Miss Billy, Miss Billy, Miss Billy Holiday. <laughs> the music called jazz. Thank you, Rachel Holly Parker, the one and only. Thank you, a man of jazz. Sounds of the African, or should I say the mother? Mother, bringing us back again from the drumming on the Congo. It came with a strong flow and 
continue to grow. Feet move to the beat of the Tabalo. Now dig the story and follow. For then it landed on American soil. Through the sweat, the blood, and the toil. It praised the Lord, shouted on chain games. Pain they felt, but it helped them to maintain. Scott Joplin's rags, Bessie Smith's blues. St. Louis blues, they were all the news. Ringing smooth in all the listeners' ears. Fulfilling the needs and planting the seeds of a jazz band. King Oliver's group was a train coming through to Chicago, bringing a New Orleans groove. And when Satchmo blew, the audience knew. Basin Street Blues was the whole house tune. It was music. Great to dance to, great to romance to, with a lot to say to you. Relaying a message, revealing the essence of a jazz band. In the 40s came bebop, the first bebop, the real bebop. So let me talk about Diz and Bird, giving the word, defining how a beat could be so complete. Playing with ferocity, thinking with velocity About ornithology or anthropology And even epistrophe, and this is real history Thelonious Monk, a melodious thump No mistakes were made with the notes he played His conception was recondite A star glowing bright among dim lights The critics did cite that he sounded alright Charlie Mingus, such nimble fingers Dropping the bass all over the place And Max Roach, cymbal socking Bass drum talking, snare drum rocking Restructuring the metaphysics of a jazz thing. That's always like you to feel that you've just walked in. A quick browse on the web, uh, Amazon and other well-known online record stores reveals a list of comps as long as your arm covering the acid jazz movement. What makes your 25th anniversary box set different from those previous attempts? And can you explain how you've broken down the four quite different CDs? Every time it's been done before, it's been done as kind of the best 20 records of acid jazz or the best 25 records or the most easily licensable 20 records so we can put this compilation out cheaply i think we've hit a point where we were allowed to do something here because of the time that's passed 25 years is long enough and people are interested enough i think if we'd done it five years ago we'd have got virtually no reaction this time we've had to send ed out to work really hard and it's been quite depressing for him he doesn't like that sort of thing <laughs> but he's been non-stop interviews we've been Covered in the press everywhere. I think we got a really good, for want of a good acid jazz word, vibe going on this. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> by think, thinking through what acid jazz really meant to us. And it meant various things at various times. It went from when we got into it, it was all old records. And, you know, going to the Special Branch or the WAG or Dingwalls and really getting into those those records. And they kind of all sat together on the first CD. Second CD, there was a bunch of new records that came through from that very first blast. Many of them weren't acid jazz records. They were just records that fitted with our scene. They kind of all came together in the, the first flowerings of bands that were signed to acid jazz or things that we DJ with, you know, like jazz. Obviously, Gangstar didn't make jazz thing for English clubbers. But when that record came out, we all went, that's the most perfect record ever for us. <laughs> you know, that's just like, they're talking about jazz records and they got a Call of the Gang bass line and, and a bit of whatever going on. That made the second disc for us. And the third disc was, you know, was the greatest hits, but not the greatest hits. The hits that meant something to me and Ed as we were doing it. I think all three of those, the first three discs on the, on the box set, gave us a very gave us a view that no one's ever really taken of the scene before because no one's taken the historical aspect in that way. Actually, they've not taken it seriously. That box set is so varied in what is on it. You've got from like late 50s 
jazz rap bebop uh, right the way through to breakbeat hip hop trip hop and like Cypress Hill it's such a varied thing if you can't find anything valid on what we've achieved then you're a moron because it's because it's a <laughs> no I've got to say it's a beautiful thing are there any particular favourite tracks or artists amongst them four CDs that mean more to you than others? I, I want to say Back by Dope Demand is a very, very important record to me. Why? Because it had Fat Albert Rotunda by Herbie Hancock on it. And it was around the time when we were playing the original of, of that record. That record was really important to me. And also Sugar Bear, Don't Scandalise Mine. Now, I've chosen two hip-hop records, but also I really love Golden Lady by Jose Feliciano, which is the track that most people seem to play, all the radio people have played that. It's such a beautiful acid jazz track. Why? It's a song that everybody knows, Golden Lady by Stevie Wonder, but it's done in such a way that is so cool and so danceable and so not pop that it's a beautiful record. started I was at college and then I left college and started working for the record label which is you know pretty much a dream job and just this whole thing was just incredibly 
amazing for me. The things that bring memories are things like uh, Master Plan, uh, Diane Brown and Barry Sharp. I just remember when they promoted that for about 200 weeks. You know, other things like the whole Paul Weller involvement in the scene. Yeah. And, you know, that first Paul Weller album to me should have been on Acid Jazz if we'd actually yeah. had the Nearly balls to what? do it. What, the, 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 um, his first solo album? Yeah. It's still my favourite album of his. No, absolutely. It's just an incredible album. Just anything from that album brings back one of one of my favourite memories of Acid Jazz was the week before Ed, Ed's wedding. We were out with a few people from the office and uh, D, Paul's wife, DC Lee, came along and we were sitting around and Paul was meant to turn up all night and he kept on phoning up and going I, I, I'm still in the studio sorry I won't we popped out we'd been in the office we popped out for dinner and he was meant to come along he hadn't turned up we went back to the office and we were sitting around having a few beers and he's gone I'll, I'll be down in five minutes and he turns up and he's like bloody hell it's late now isn't it and he, he walks in and he goes oh sorry sorry I've just been mixing track for my album alright do you want to hear it me and Ed are pretending. Yes, me and Ed are sitting there going, well, do we, don't we, do we? Of course we do. Puts in Bull Rush from the first album and we're just like... And I'm just thinking, 10 years ago, when I was a kind of 12-year-old kid into the jam, could I actually believe this would be happening to me? It's just like the whole period was incredible. Yeah, we shouldn't forget, actually, talking to Chris Bangs earlier. His involvement on that album and above the clouds. Oh, fantastic! For me, that is... on that. <laughs> giving him, giving Paul that two-step kind of curtomy exactly. type feel to it. Without Chris Bangs, none of this would have happened. Uh, my interview wouldn't have happened. Neither would Dean's. Dean wouldn't have had a job at Acid Jazz without Chris Bangs and his lateral thinking musically. None of this would have happened.
We can't possibly talk to you, Eddie, without mentioning the late, great Terry Callio, who sadly passed away just a few weeks ago. For those that don't know, can you recount how you were instrumental in resurrecting his career here in the UK and explain why you weren't able to sign him to Acid Jazz for the material he recorded during his revival period? So basically what happened was, as I said earlier in the interview, um, Giles had left and I needed to find something good. And the Special Branch's biggest record introduced by Bob Jones was I Don't Want to See Myself on Erect, a 12-inch record that was selling for 40, 50 quid at the time. And I saw my past, but with contemporary influences. So I wanted to sign that record. I tried to find Terry. I discovered quite early on that he'd wanted to withdraw from public life and you know, the music industry. I tried all the normal channels, the, the writers' guilds and the publishing companies and Jerry Butler and all this, and I couldn't find him. There was no Terry Callier involved in the music. He wasn't getting royalties anymore. He was out. So in the end, I had to use a, you know, after work every night in Hackney, I'd phone an American suburb, and I was started in, I was told by Jerry Butler's people that he'd moved to LA, so I started in LA. And bear in mind, there's only phone companies, right? There's no internet. You had to phone a phone company and say, which of your clients is called Terence Orlando Callier? And obviously after like 20 you know, different phone companies. Each suburb has its own phone company, so you could phone a city and phone 15 different phone companies at 20 minutes a time and not find Terry Callier. And in the end, I, I went back to Chicago because I thought, you know, if he's not in LA, where everyone told me it was, he's going to be in Chicago. And I phoned all the directories, and in the end, I found a Terence Orlando Callier. I phoned him. Uh, a, a young girl, maybe 14, 15, answered the phone and said, no, there's no one here called Terry Callier, put the phone down. So I thought, that's a bit dodge, because I, I know he lives here. So I phoned it again. After about three weeks, the girl answered the phone and said, just hold on. And then about 30 seconds later, this quiet voice came on the phone and said, look, you know, I understand you want to talk to me. I am Terry Callier. You know, if, if I don't take this call, my daughter said you'll probably phone for, like, the rest of time. So what is it that you want? And I said, well, look, you know, I'm a massive fan and I want to put your record out, this record, independent. I've tracked you down. I, I want to put it out. It's a f massive hit in London, underground. No, I'm not interested. So this took a few weeks of cajoling and persuasion. And in the end, we came, me and Dean came up with an idea that we would invite him and his daughter over for a holiday. And we put them up for five days and we put on a gig at the 100 Club. Now, if he enjoyed this holiday and if he enjoyed the gig, you know, we'd put a band on and they'd work it out. If he enjoyed it, he could maybe let us release the record. So he did the gig. It sold out a month in advance. He cried because he, he didn't realise. When he forgot the words, he looked in the audience and they sung the words to him of every song he did in the set. And he came up to us in the dressing room of the 100 Club was this four foot by five foot. It was ridiculous. And he was crying. And he said, listen, I had no idea and I would like to do it. Let's, let's do it. So we did the record and, you know, we licensed the record from Terry and it sold 10,000 copies of a record that sold 200 copies when it came out. And suddenly people were talking about Terry Callier again. The thing was that Terry still didn't really want to be involved in the music industry. He um, went back to Chicago. He didn't do any more gigs for two or three years. Russ Dubry and Adrian Gibson had got his number from me, and they had to take six months to persuade him to come back over. 
And by that time, things were very different. So he came over, we gave him a big check at the jazz cafe one night, but we weren't really focusing on recording him. And at that point, Russ and Giles took it up. It was a whole different world. And Giles could only sign that in the end because he got Verve on side in the States. Mercury wouldn't let him sign it in in the UK. It's just one of those things. Time had passed. I'd just like to say I'm totally proud of, of that. I think it's, uh, I don't want to see myself without you, is... It's not his best record, but it's in the top three. I, from my money, you know, there's... B-side was pretty good. Well, <laughs> well, that, well, actually, at the Terry Cunningham Memorial last week, um, you had to say what record you were going to play before the event. And I said, if I could only make you change your mind. And I played it. And it was a beautiful, uplifting experience with 500 people in the audience listening to that record. Now, when would you get to hear that record in a club on a big sound system? It's a ballad, but it was a beautiful thing. And I really enjoyed playing it. And he was a gentleman.
aside from all the 25th anniversary celebrations mentioned earlier, what else has Acid Jazz been up to this past year? Tell us about your recent and forthcoming releases and what we can expect from Acid Jazz Records moving forward into 2013. This year, we've mostly been doing the 25th anniversary, which has really taken everyone's time and not really given us a lot of time for new releases. But coming up in the new year, there are plenty of new things. First up is a single by uh, Gino Washington. It's part of the Rare Mod series. Well, actually, what Dean didn't say is it's an unheard Gino Washington Northern Soul Stomper that we recently discovered for the Rare Mod series, which is brilliant. We're releasing an, the first ever legal album by the major British soul band from the 60s, the Fleur de Lis, who had a f- many hits with um, Sharon Tandy, but they've only ever been bootlegged, and we've tracked down the, the, the guys, and we're doing their first ever legal album, which is going to do very well. We've got a great little soul band called The Dilemmas, and we're looking at two or three new projects after that. And what I would like to do for next year, I'd like to find a young jazz musician. It can be a vocalist, it can be a sax player. I love the flute personally, it can be a pianist, but I'd love to make a brilliant cutting edge jazz record next year. Well, there you go. I hope you enjoyed that little acid jazz special for you. A big, big thanks to Eddie Pillar and Dean Rudland down at the acid jazz uh, offices. And of course, to my partner in crime, Ketch Shah, for putting that interview together. I think you'll agree it was worth waiting for. box set itself is in your shops now and on the uh, online stores. It's on the Harmless Records uh, imprint. And it's called Acid Jazz, the 25th anniversary box set. Go out and buy it now, put it on your Christmas list. It's an essential must-have box set. Most of the tracks you heard during the interview were taken from that box set. A couple of little numbers we just sneaked in. So we've got about half an hour to go on this particular show, so... What I thought I'd do is put together a few of my other favourite choices from that box set. I'll give you a little rundown of the whole track listing. Towards the end of the show. Thank you. 
Ivan Boogaloo Joe Jones. Title track from his 1973 album from Prestige Records. Black Whip. Loving baby, 
is all so devastating to a man. Oh, but just like black magic, babe, I'm no fool, but I couldn't understand. But just think, y'all, I thought I was a big man. But apparently, she thought not. There must be something that I'm missing. Or is it something that she's got? Big, big favourite from the box set, Tyron Davis. It makes me wanna cry. From his album Home Record, Dakar Records. I believe that one's all the way back to uh, 1969. This one's a little bit more recent, from 1990, Arthur Miles. Someone to lean on when you're feeling down.
you're listening to the Mucho Soul Show. Just playing a few more of those uh, choice cuts from the Acid Jazz box set. A few of my personal favourites. You had Helping Hand from Arthur Miles. Don't You Care from Alice Clark, Mainstream Records, 1972. Spanky Wilson and You from uh, a 1969 7-inch on Mother Records. And this one here, James Taylor Quartet. Love will keep us together. That's just about it for another Mucho Soul Show. We'll be back same time, same place next week. Here on backtobackfm.net between 1 and 3 o'clock on a Sunday. Don't forget, if you want to listen back, you can catch it on our podcast. That's www.podomatic.com forward slash Mucho Soul find a few of our old shows on there as well this particular show will be up there around about Tuesday or Wednesday just running back through the track listing for the actual interview we kicked it all off with Charles Ireland and Morelli then we had the Ballistic Brothers and Blacker it was Soho and Hot Music Galliano and Frederick Lie Still the brand new heavies B&H Young Disciples, get yourself together. Dread Flintstone from the ghetto. It was Jimmy Smith and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Dream Come True, the second one from the brand new heavies. Jamiroquai and Too Young to Die. Apple Green from Mother Earth. Jazz Thing from Gangster, Golden Lady from Jose Feliciano, Above the Clouds from Paul Weller, and If I Could Make You Change Your Mind from the one and only Terry Callier. And with the exception of Paul Weller and that Terry Callier track, every single one of those gems you'll find on Acid Jazz, the 25th anniversary box set. Many thanks for listening. Leaving you with the Forest Mighty Black. Fresh in your mind. We'll see you next week.